Hello, language enthusiasts, and welcome to The Language Worker, a space to talk about the people involved in the language business in a broad sense. I'm interested in finding out how their training, work experience, and their passion for languages has shaped our guests' professional and, of course, personal lives. Join me on this journey to explore the multiple and unpredictable paths one can follow when we are involved in the magical world of languages. Andrea and Rodrigo have been working together for over 15 years. Andrea is quick, sociable, and communicative, and Rodrigo is focused and dedicated, but when they get together, they come to life as a power duo who join forces to help their company implement and develop their machine translation strategy. These days, they are still working together and they are focused on AI and how it can better be used to benefit all parts involved in the language business. Hi, everybody. I'm super happy and excited to have with me for the first time two guests, actually. So this is the first episode where I have two guests. And this is justified because <laughs> they have been working together for a long time. And we already had the chance to have a conversation before this uh, some time ago. And it was amazing to see them both interact and, you know, just talk about what they really know like nobody else. So I would just ask you guys to introduce yourself. We'll start, I guess, with uh, Andrea with an A. So we'll go in alphabetical order. <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds good to me. So yes, I'm Andrea Stevens, and um, I'm really happy and super excited to be here as well. So um, yes, we've been speaking to you before, right, Rita, about our experience. Rodrigo and I, we both work for a large language services provider, one of the two biggest, I think, around the world, right? And um, yeah, we're we are really excited to have a chat and to talk about our experiences and how we got to where we are. Mm -hmm. And Rodrigo, just a little bit, I've, I've, I've learned now that Rodrigo is actually Chilean and I'm very excited because I think this is the first Chilean person I've ever seen. So I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm Rodrigo Fuentes Corradi. Um, I come from Chile originally. I was born in Chile uh, a number of years ago, but my parents ended up moving for political reasons to the UK. So after the, uh, the strife, uh, political strife in the 70s, we came to the UK. Um, I've gone back to Chile uh, and now I've come back to Europe. Uh, so again, I've been working with Andrea, uh, large LSP now for 15 years. Maybe more together I with Andrea, so. 20 years, maybe Probably at the more. company itself. Um, so yeah, we've been working really, and, and the part that we work in is really to do with machine translation and linguistic AI. It's been a, a mm -hmm. long relationship with Andrea um, and a long relationship with this project. So we started back in 2007. So um, super excited again, uh, as Andrea said, to be here. Uh, it's new for us to, to, to be sharing these experiences, but um, we've seen your podcast and we really enjoyed them. And mm -hmm. um, like we said earlier, we wanted to give it a go. Um, yeah. So let's see how we go. Yeah, that's great because I, I always say that I really, I just told you this, you guys, but it, this, this is what I do. I think that it's really important for everybody involved in the industry to also have a perspective, a personal perspective from people who actually work for those you know, mythical or mystical for some people, <laughs> large LSPs, right? Since I worked on the other one, <laughs> yes, <that is> true. <laughs> on the other big one. And I know what, what people think about it, how people feel about it. Maybe they don't feel the same way about both. Well, that's irrelevant now. But the truth is that I thought it was a great idea to have you guys here because you worked uh, in the machine translation AI department of all things. And I think we're missing and lacking a lot of information, especially from somebody's point of view. And it's just not somebody, right? Because I, I could also give you my opinion, but that's irrelevant because you guys have been there since you know, your companies have started to, or your company started to implement, I say companies because now it's more than one and it used to be Absolutely, one yeah. and then that one, but it's just what happens now for a long time. But it's just to have an idea on how things evolved and your personal take on all of that. So I would just ask Andrea. So when you first started working for this large LSB, I mean, at some point, just say the name if you want to. I mean, it's written right there <laughs> in our image. And then what did you expect? What was your idea? So, I mean, first of all, right, when I started working for what at the time was SDL, 
here I said it, um, it wasn't large at all, right? Oh, it wasn't. About, no, I think when I started there, there were about 20 people, maybe. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, maybe 25, 30, roughly half of them kind of translators with a few project managers. And, and you know, we started a couple of engineers and DTP. So it was really very, very small and it was very familiar. So when I started, I was in fact the third German translator that started there. So, um, and we had French translators, Spanish and Italian sort of, that was, that was roughly the mixture. <laughs> so it was, it was quite small. And, um, you know, it, it was honestly, it was more by pure chance because I'm, I'm German. So I live in the UK, but I'm German. And it was my more pure chance that I came to the UK because after I finished my studies, I had um, two job offers, one in a really small agency in Denmark, and the other one in a fairly small agency here in Maidenhead in the UK, right? <laughs> so, so I had to kind of weigh up what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, English is always kind of the better choice, right? I better, you know, gives me, gives me sort of better opportunities probably than, you know, going to Denmark. So I had, um, I studied English and Italian at uni, mm-hmm. but I also did, um, I also did um, a year, eight or nine months in um, Copenhagen studying Danish. So I'm not very good at it mm. anymore, but it was a great experience. I loved it. Honestly, it was so nice. So, um, so yeah, so the experience was, it was really interesting, actually, because we were all, you know, really young in our mid-20s, and we worked a lot and we partied a lot, I think, yes. is, is maybe the best way to describe it, because we were all of a similar age. And mm-hmm. um, but But from a work perspective, actually, I learned so much. I think because we were small and at the beginning we had mainly IT projects, I think. So, you know, we had engineers there on site. So, you know, we actually, we sat with the engineers, they took a computer apart for us. They told us what all the different parts are, how it all goes together, you know, and, and you know, with the DTP guys as well, the DTP people, we just, you know, we learned so much about the other disciplines as well because it was such a small company and because you know we all kind of worked together very closely that you know and in terms of what i what i learned for translation mm. and you know and and in in terms of what i learned in terms of technical knowledge that was amazing and i had i had at the time i had you know also i had a really really good line manager who was um you know, he was very, he was quite strict, you know, it was, um, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, we've come fresh out of uni, first job, so you don't, sometimes really don't know what to do. So, so you know, he would actually go and just take our translations, correct them, come back to us, explain what, you know, what wasn't right with it. And then we were implementing it. And I think that was such a great way to learn because, you know, we learned, we learned on the job really, mm. but we weren't left alone. So, so we were given so much feedback, you know, from the people around us that for, for me, I mean, that was a really formative experience, I think. And I think that really, really made me a better translator as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a lot because I thought that, you know, so I thought you had already started at a big company. I had that impression. So no, obviously not I was all. totally wrong. Not at all. It obviously grew into a big company, but it, yes. um, you know, <laughs> yes, I I started there when it was really still quite small. Okay. What about you, Rodrigo? In that case, that's the same situation, right? No, I'm going to. No, because you really didn't start there, right? No, I, I'm going to feel a little embarrassed now because, I mean, I haven't actually heard all of Andrea's story, even though we've known each other for a long time, but that seems very <laughs> well thought out, Andrea, you know, like a good. I guess, you know, mind in terms of career progress. I I left university, I studied uh, kind of languages and literature. I must have left university when I was 23, maybe something like that. Um, but I didn't really get a job till I was 30 to some degree. Oh, that's, that's you know? a good approach. Um, I went to Chile um, and I kind of stumbled around. I think I always used my language skills. Mm-hmm. I ended up teaching English. I think invariably lots of people do that. Um, I then taught literature. I, I liked always literature. Um, I remember my dad said to me, you know, he said to me, you know, try to delay working as long as you can, because once you start, you won't finish. And <laughs> right. this comes from somebody, you know, my dad's a very responsible man, uh, engineer, you know, always, you know, very career and family focused. 
So I kind of took that on board. I mean, I did have jobs clearly, but I was freelancing, I was writing and such. Mm. Uh, but it took a while till I kind of settled down and got into the language industry. Um, so I started in a few jobs, got to uh, SDL uh, and followed a project management role. Mm. I was always quite bossy as a child, I think. My mum always described me as quite bossy. So um, You're always it, quite bossy as a project manager as well, if I may say that. You, you may say that. I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's true. Was he a project manager at some point? No. Yeah, that's how yeah. I started. I, think ah. I, I became a project manager and I rose kind of through kind of, I would say, you know, the, the, the project manager kind of pathway, which is, you know, project manager, program manager, operations manager. It, it was at one point then that I kind of wandered over. Um, SDL was a bigger organization at that point. So I wandered mm. over to having lunch um, and saw just a job ad for what we called called at the time, I think, was uh, KBTS, Knowledge-Based uh, Translation System, which is a rules-based machine translation system. Mm -hmm. um, and I got interested in it. Um, and I remember that's kind of where I met Andrea. Andrea had already been there for about a year, I think. Um, and I think at that point, what we had was rules-based translation, which was quite clumsy, obviously. Mm -hmm. It was a lot yes. of coding um, <laughs> of terminology into the system. Um, and I think myself and Andrea, it's interesting you were saying, Andrea, earlier about, you know, like uh, the experience you've got. But I think both of us arrived to that particular group of fair amount of experience. We were more experienced than a lot of people that were working there. We were taking people uh, to be in a group of translators that would help us build the engines that were quite young, quite fresh out of university. And they were very, very enthusiastic, but they probably needed honing in their craft and probably honing a little bit also in what it means to work in a commercial environment. So it started quite a lot as a laboratory uh, in, in the sense that, you know, we were building engines, testing them, but it was always with an eye to have a context of the commercial part. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably where myself and Andrea kind of met and had kind of meeting of minds. I think we were a little older and the context that it needed to be commercial was the kind of reality that I think myself and Andrea brought to the table there. I don't think, I mean, my memory is not brilliant. I mean, we're talking about 2007, 2008, so 15 years yeah. ago when we started with Rulespace, we had this internal team. I might be wrong, Andrea, but I, I think we weren't popular with the rest of the group. I, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think we necessarily were. But Rodrigo is right in that we brought a slightly different perspective to the table. So by that time, so I, I started as a translator and I worked for him a few years as a translator as well. So, you know, on, on really big projects as well. So it was a great experience. But um, as the company grew and the teams grew, I moved into line management. So I had a team of German translators that, um, you know, that I was working with. So, and when you do that, of course, you move away from translation and you go much more into, you know, training, mentoring and reviewing, really, because because that is, you know, that is the path. So and it's not for everybody. Right. But mm -hmm. I think I think it's often and you can maybe call it the fate of an in-house translator that really in-house translators will end up doing more review work than and, and you know, also, I guess, more admin work than just translation, because mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously, you know, yourself with big projects, you need to outsource quite a lot. And then, of course, you know, your in-house role takes on a slightly different, sort of you take on slightly different responsibilities. You know, you have five translators working freelance for you. So what you do in the end is not translate yourself, but you make sure that, you know, all of this, you know, is consistent, yep. for example, all mm -hmm. of this. So, so that's, you know, that is the role. And then, you know, when you go into line management, you obviously take on, you know, people management as well, people management responsibilities. So, so that is, it's a slightly different path, but you know, it's one, it's one I really enjoyed. And from the line management, I moved into translation management. So I managed multilingual teams. Usually we had, you know, French, Italian, German, Spanish um, in-house, plus Brazilian, Portuguese and um, Japanese. So, so I had, I had teams in these languages and, you know, some like, you know, the French and Spanish teams were a bit bigger, the Japanese teams maybe a little bit smaller with five people. But so, you know, and, and, and that is when you, I think when you move into that role, then you get much more of a sense for the commercial realities that you're working with. Because of course you, um, you, you know, and then this, this may be, 
if maybe you know news to some of your listeners and in, in terms of you know what it entails as well but but of course you know you have a big team of people you need to make sure those people have actually work to do so you mm-hmm. know so that they have enough work to do that nobody sits there and has nothing to do so you have to juggle outsourcing and insourcing mm-hmm. all these things um you know you have you have to juggle sometimes the cost of these things as well you know how much you 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 know it you've done it right <laughs> so so it, it's just it's just a reality that that this is you know this is what happens and and I mean to me it was a really fulfilling role you know I love the people management side of it um you know I loved talking to my you know my deputy at the time was um Spanish and and you know we we had you know it, it was it was just great to talk to to you know work with people of so many different nationalities to learn from them as well and you know and to be able to to just you know lead that team in that way so yeah I mean I really enjoyed it right and and then of course you know as these things go I went on maternity leave so (laughs) (laughs) so um so I went on maternity leave for the first time and I I came back to work in the same role and then I went on maternity leave again relatively quickly for a second time and um, when I came back, um, there was this actually really interesting role as a vendor manager in our new machine translation department, which is the one that Rodrigo mentioned. Vendor so... management for machine translation department. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it wasn't the easiest role, shall we say. Um, especially, you know, with a, with a rules-based machine translation system. And, you know, they're very clumsy, but they have advantages as well. You know, they're very predictable. Yeah. which is maybe not something that you can say of later machine translation systems. Okay. But <laughs> it was based, you know, you knew what you're getting. It was, it yeah. was very clumsy. It was, you know, word on word, but it was. Yes. I remember those. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you do. And yes, this is where we met Rodrigo and I. So, so yeah, it's, it's exactly because you guys would have to have a different mind. I always say, because I worked with a lot of translators and then what do you do after being a translator for such a, for example, for a long period at a company, yeah. if you want to move on to something else, it's usually very complicated. And most translators that I know, and from my experience, listening to people, they do not see themselves as the next obvious role from a company point of view, but not from a philosophical point of view, because you cannot ever say that someone who has the perfect skills to be a translator has the perfect skills to be a project manager or anything in that position, right? Because it doesn't make sense because it's a whole other perspective. But I also, I always say that it's the role and anything, well, because it has different terminologies throughout the companies right but it it is the role where you actually have an overview like nothing else right we you can see the side of the client you can see the side of the company and you can see the side of your in-house people and of your freelancers so this is like all the worlds collide within this one figure right and so rodrigo you you have a lot of experience on this obviously so (laughs) you know much better than i do and just going back a little bit to what Andrea was saying, when, mm-hmm. when I met Andrea, I mean, you were coming back from your second maternity leave. I, I was coming, I was going into my first paternity leave. So I have one daughter. <laughs> so around that time, I think just as professionals, I think we, we, we've done a lot of things myself, Andrea. I'd never met Andrea before we worked by that stage. No, was I hadn't met Rodrigo either, I have to so say. So only so, after um, kids, right? <laughs> only after yes, having only kids. After kids. <laughs> So I, I think there's a couple of things. I think, you know, on, on, a, on a personal level, I was more focused. You know, I was becoming a dad and, and, you know, that was, you know, like a obviously an experience which changes you and maybe formalizes you as a person, obviously. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, Andre, but I stopped partying. I don't know. <laughs> <That point. laughs> yes, I think I stopped partying a little bit before then. <laughs> so, yes. So I think I think that that was that was interesting that we met at that point. Um so we brought, I think, you know, the professional and the personal focus. I mean, one of the things I remember saying very early on in, in a job interview was, you know, like, uh, what was my best asset as a person? One of my assets, I always say, is I'm quite lazy, which in a job interview doesn't always go down very well. But then, you know, I usually get a chance to explain it. I think I don't like wasting time. So I like being at home. I like relaxing. I like looking out the window and reading. Uh, but I have to earn that. And that laziness that I want to earn has to come through some form, some form of efficiency at work. Um, so things at work have to be kind of really kind of efficient as much as possible. Clearly, I think, you know, that, that when I joined the machine translation project, 
Um, there was it was very different to I would say what I was doing before. Everything else was much more predictive. We were building something at that time, and so the reactions that we got from customers or from uh, the supply chain uh, were somewhere between curiosity and horror, I'd say. And uh, I think more that's... on the side of horror. I would yeah, say. yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Yeah. I mean, there was nobody really at, at that point. You know that, that I think you know the great stakeholders, whether you are a customer and somebody approaches you to say, you know, you want to do machine translation on your content, you know, that, that was something, well, what about the quality? So I think that was a, a conversation that needed to be persuasive and based on data. Um, I think within our own organization, there was trepidation. We, we, SDL had huge in-house in linguistic teams, so huge amounts of expertise, huge amounts of opinion about the mm. subject. And I think, you know, like within the company and also, I think also, you know, obviously in the supply chain. So I think that we had to go about that uh, and look for people that were curious. I think that that was the thing. And when you used to call up the, it's an interesting thing when you used to call up the, uh, the freelancers. So we had to build our own supply chain at that point. That was something, you know, that Andrea did. Um, and I helped with, you know, with my project managers, I helped to do that as well. But it wasn't always that people wanted to do that work there, there were more people that would possibly say you know i'm not i'm actually not interested in doing yeah. that so their point of reference or their frame of reference was always something like you know uh, open machine translation on the web mm-hmm. um, even though that i think that we had the advantage of being able to encode the terminology which sped things up a lot it was still very clunky to work with so i think the personal skills that we had at that point the maturity of being told like actually not interested and in having several doors closed to us i think um I think we were both lucky, Andrea, that we were kind of like thick-skinned. I think it wasn't for everybody. No, it was. It it wasn't an an easy job, but I think, as I said, as you know, it was very interesting because, as Rodrigo said, we were trying to build something that hadn't really been done before, and you know, we we were obviously lucky as well to work there with a team of translators or post editors. Um, that were interested in what we were doing, right? So we had, I think, Rodrigo, how many did we have in house? 20, 25 translators? We grew to nearly 30. Nearly 30, yeah. The languages with rules based were actually some quite interesting. We had Figs, we had Portuguese. Yeah. I think we started on Finnish and Swedish. So so we started to to grow quite big. So we had, yeah, we had interesting languages and we had a team that was really keen as well. But, you know, there, there was there wasn't the interest from clients that is today when you, you know, to you talk about machine translation, AI, and, and, you know, the efficiencies you can have with it, but also, you know, the advantages it brings you. It was just really, even with clients, there was really none of that. You know, in the beginning, I think we had, we had two clients, one from the travel industry and one, um, one who was a um, manufacturer of agricultural machinery, mm. right? So, so these these were our first two clients, and of course, what we tried to do in terms of the supply chain, you you obviously want to keep the expertise on the project. You just want to switch it from translation to post editing to a post editing framework, and so and that's you know, super easy to do. People will be like, oh, sure, there's no absolutely. problem. <laughs> that's no problem at all. I mean, you know, a weekend we had everyone. No, so so yes, from from that point of view, you know, it was. Um, it was quite difficult because I I prefer to do things, you know, when it came to to asking people about post editing to do it by the phone, really, because it's better it's better to have a conversation with people, right? Um, so so and the answer, as Rodrigo said, was often no. You know, we're really not interested. But you know, to be fair as well, there were a few who were actually interested, who who thought, yes, you know what you know, let's give it a go. Let's see how this goes. But, you know, I think it was no more often than yes. Mm -hmm. And so we also felt, you know, we needed to start going to find other people, maybe people that hadn't worked on the project before, but that were interested in post-editing. So you have to find a balance there. And, and, you know, I I completely agree also that post-editing is maybe not for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I understand. And then even to this day, you know, it's not for everyone. So I completely understand if people don't it, turn it down and if people don't want to do it. So, so, and I think, you know, everybody should have the choice. You know, if you're a freelancer, obviously, you know, you, you should have the choice whether you want to post edit or not, you know, that's entirely up to you. Um, but, you know, we were, we were very, working very hard to build a supply chain and to build a pool of freelancers 
that were actually willing to post edit, willing to give it a try, and then hopefully also carry on with it. Because that was one of the things, Rodrigo, I think that we talked about already in the beginning, you know, really early. Post-editing, it needs to be a sustainable proposition. Okay. You can't have people who say, well, I'm going to take one job in post-editing and then I really don't like it, you know, and then I'm going to move off. So, so everything has to work together in a way, you know, your, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, quality has to, has to get better in terms of. And you guys had some sort of training going on or specific instructions, all of those things, I suppose. Yeah. All those things. And of course, sorry, I, I was just going to say at the time, of course, you know, machine translation got better by encoding, by encoding terms, you know, by encoding words and so on. But yeah, I mean, we did have, we did, you know, we did start out to roll a training program fairly, fairly soon, I think, mm -hmm. right? So we started quite small there as well. I think, I think um, it's interesting that another thing that I share with Andrea is that, um, you know, we're quite ideas led. I think we're ideas led yeah. and narrative led. And I think that at the beginning, I sat down with Andrea and we, and there was another colleague of ours as well. And we needed to document things, you know, like, you know, we needed to document data points, productivity gains, those kind of things, but we needed to work out quite quickly what the narrative was, you know, like you know, something that people could, you know, and, and obviously if you look at the linguistic community and translators, they're very well educated. I mean, they're not just their skill in language. I mean, a lot of them speak several languages have lived in many countries. And so I think you have to appeal in that respect to the idea behind it. Well, why are mm. we doing this? You know, well, what advantage will you get? Um, and obviously we have to project a future of, you know, I guess, you know, growing content and, and, and the inability to kind of do all that content in the same way. And so we subscribe to that idea and have to build out quite a bit. I think we have to have values at the beginning as well. I think I sat down with you, Andrea, and we're having this conversation about, I think we're both quite hardworking people um but i think one of the things that we also i think shared was kind of we needed a clarity of vision and and in my i mean you know andrea's hopefully not going to laugh again but um empathy was, was kind of the key thing that mm -hmm. i think we needed to understand you know it was something that, that very early on we kind of needed to recognize what our audience was and, and try to kind of empathize with the change that we believe you know we're talking about 2007 so it's a long time ago that yeah. we believed was going to come and kind of figure out, okay, what kind of change was going to come? How would it affect them? How do we kind of like get people on board? Uh, we started with data, showing people data, look, you're faster. You can't argue with the fact that you did it faster. And you know, that's it. Um, but then I think we rolled out, started to roll out training. And I think that's when I think we, it became, I think more satisfying because I think at the beginning, you know, we, we felt a little bit, I, mean, I hope I'm not exaggerating, Andrea, but I think I think we felt a bit kind of like uh, surrounded by lots of people that were not quite on board with our ideas, and we needed to kind of come up with some compelling arguments. And, and it felt quite defensive at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think after a while, we we kind of we realised it. We realised we just needed to change tactics. So I think we we did it with data to begin with, but it felt like that kind of stick. You know, that this is the data. You know, can't argue with data. But actually, people can argue with data, and they'll argue with data for quite a long time. Um, you know, how did you get that? And and they're right to do it as well, because the data wasn't always harvested in the most efficient or, let's say, precise way. It was quite difficult to mm. get data that we actually trusted at the beginning. We had to narrow down in our experiments to really make sure that what we were measuring was the post-editing effort, and there were no, there wasn't extra noise in the, in, the, in the kind of equation, you know, distractions, people being, you know, stopping their work. We had to build a platform which measures precisely things like keystrokes in order to really get mm -hmm. at the fact, you know, that we were talking about the gains from post-editing and nothing else. It wasn't a gain from a translation memory or a terminology base. It was actually people, you know, actually being able to edit faster um, because of the quality of the output. Mm -hmm. So I think the training then came along. And I think that was our second phase. So if we started in 2007, 2014 was the first time we rolled out certification. I might be slightly wrong there, Andrea, but that was the first yeah. time we said we oh, actually well. need to go out with something. We had yeah. a plethora of internal documents, I imagine, and we used to send those out to um, to you know the freelancers that we'd work with. But it wasn't until 2014 that we said all of this needs to come in a much more digestible format, right, Andrea? Yeah, I mean that's what we did, and and you know Rodrigo is right about data because. 
the, the data when we run these tests on whether somebody is faster with translation or post-editing. The, the data in almost all cases showed that people are faster with post-editing, even if they thought they were faster with translation. But the, the thing is, you know, I think in, in this case, it wasn't really about the data. I think it was about how you feel about mm -hmm. this task. You know, yeah. it's about a feeling. It's not, you, you know, if you feel if you feel this is a task where you as a translator can't show your experience and your knowledge and your years of study and your value, then it's not going to fly, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, I've, I've been a translator, you know, I've studied obviously in Germany at the time we studied a bit longer than, for example, in the UK. So I studied for, you know, for four years, you know, mm -hmm. and you, you know, you, you want to feel that all this, all this knowledge is put to good use, right? And, and, you know, we, we had, we had a sort of similar, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, when, you know, the first catchals came in almost. Yes, and I was going to ask you about that because yes, and working at SDL, and I'm not even sure, I was thinking to myself, was Stratus immediately released for the first time by you guys or was it emerged no, later? It, it wasn't actually. So, um, so we worked... Um, when I first started, we didn't work with a catch-all. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then obviously Trouders sort of came about, but Trouders was a separate company at that time. Mm -hmm. So right. um and and I didn't spend my whole life on the um I didn't spend my whole life on the LSP side. So I worked for um for a bit um for a large enterprise and I specialized in enterprise resource planning software. So and that's where I worked with Trouders. And, and then at, um, back at the LSP side, we then started developing SDLX. So, mm. so we switched essentially from Trados to that. And, but, but, you know, even at the time, a lot of people were really concerned about, you know, how this would affect them. And, and now, I mean, you, you look now sort of, it's everywhere and nobody really works without, you know, a translation memory system of, of any description anymore. Right. So, so especially not when you're in localization, let's say, you know. For sure. Well, I know I went straight to localization and the first time yeah. I worked ever, uh, it was already with cat tools. And that was yes, back exactly. in 2007, eight. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so absolutely. So, so, and then this, this was a little bit, this was a little bit similar. And I think what we really felt, what we really felt is it's about, you know, hearts and minds and not the data. And, and this is why we started with the training and, you know, this wasn't only for supply chain. We also trained our internal teams because, you know, post-editing grew. Um, you know, we are now, I, th I think, one of the only language service providers who's got um, in-house translation team still. So we started, you know, um, training the in-house teams to take on post-editing work because it had, you know, it grew bigger, it grew beyond our team essentially. So, you know, mm -hmm. we had to we had to scale that out. So, and, you know, it also wasn't always easy internally because, because, you know, it's a change, it's a change in process. It's a change in your work. You know, it's, it's a change how you approach things. And, and some people are better to deal, you know, deal better with this than others. But, but that's why we started training. And, and Rodrigo quite rightly said, you know, we started with a, we, we thought, yeah, we have to have a program you know, instead of having to individually go to people and say, yes, so for post-editing, either we do like, um, you know, we, we actually went on site at times to our, you know, language offices and trained there as well, mm -hmm. you know, but that's, of course, is also not sustainable over the long run. So you need to have something people can access easily and where they get the information they need. So so that's why we started our certification program in 2014, actually. Mm -hmm. So so this is this is sort of what, what brought us on, on that path, because... You know, we by that time we'd already been working with machine translation for a good, you know, seven years, and and we felt it was it was not only about it was not only about sharing knowledge or training people, but it was also about giving something back. And mm -hmm. you know, at the time, sustainability and and you know, corporate social responsibility was not such a big thing as it is now, right? And and you. You know, I, I really think this is a is a great thing, but um, yeah, for us it was about sustainability. Yes, you know, you want people to be trained and you want to attract talent to the industry as well, but you also really you want to give something back. You know, you want to you want to share 
some of some of the experience that you've built up over the years, you know, for other people that they can have an you know an easy path to to mm. learn that, or maybe an easier path than earlier translators had. I think. Mm. That's actually obviously something I completely agree with uh, about giving back, but I don't want to be remiss as well to kind of not put the perspective, for instance, the commercial perspective on this. So we we clearly started to, I guess, build relationships with groups of translators, and, and there's a lot to be said with that because it's not just about giving back. You end up taking as well. You take their feedback and you improve your engines, but there mm -hmm. is a benefit to that quite yeah. clearly, and that's something that that we all know and it's quite clear in the dynamic but also the certification did something else I think it started to help us position our offering to our customers in a way in which they were more reassured mm. so it, it, I think that with myself and Andrea we're kind of always working in these bridges you know I, I'm kind of a bridge to the commercial part and she's the bridge maybe to what you'd call the supply chain but there's benefits that we both create together that we use to our own, I guess, um, objectives. I mean, we work very closely together, but quite often we're working also apart in different areas and such. So for the customers, you know, knowing that, you know, they were able to migrate or we were able on their behalf to migrate all that subject matter expertise. So the translator, and this happens quite a lot in the industry, some translators will work on a project with a customer client for a very long time and they know that terminology in and you know inside out yeah. and the last thing you want to do when you uh, make a change uh, in the process is to lose all of that experience it it, it jeopardizes the quality and for that sure. can jeopardize pretty much a lot of things commercially as well so for us it was uh, a tool you know i think you know it'd be remiss in saying you know that we would we were doing it because we believed in it clearly and, and andrea's much more connected to that through her experience and on an emotional level too but I saw also, you know, to be fair, I saw the commercial opportunity of having something that would differentiate ourselves when we had that customer discourse. And I think if we fast forward now to where we are now with linguistic AI, I think, you know, there, there is a gap to be filled in terms of what the customer knows about its roadmap, its future mm -hmm. roadmap. And I think all of these things just help us have a, a richer discussion and it leads to inevitably what we need in the industry in all parts of the industry which is trust mm. so you, you need to be able to kind of trust in the supply chain that they're able to take on new tools and new processes and you need your customers to trust in you that you can mm. do that uh, and not lose all of that valuable uh, insight and knowledge that they've had up till now they mm. want a different process and they want to see the benefits of, of AI, but they certainly don't want to lose on other aspects, you know, anything to do with scale, security uh, and quality. So for mm. us, I guess, you know, like um, it's about building trust, you know, across the network of stakeholders that we have to work with. And I think that that's kind of like a little bit about, you know, the other side of the coin. Yes, we mm. work with supply chain. We have very defined um, objectives there. Um, but we also have to, as, as we started in 2007, everything has a commercial context, what we're mm -hmm. doing. And I think that, that that's a reality that I think there's a new reality to be built over the next period around AI. And, you know, there won't be consensus. People will agree or disagree. But as much as we can build that, that kind of true reality and context in which we're working in, we're more likely to succeed. And I think that's, I think, probably one of the things about the uh, project that, that Andrea really leads on you know I, I contribute where I can but it's about building a, a more sustainable reality you know when we sit down and have a discussion with a customer or with a, a freelancer it can be it can be complex you know people have different interests you know they they're safeguarding their 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 craft or they're safeguarding you know their product and they just want to know that we kind of thought out what we're trying to put across it's well thought out and I think by exposing that information in the form of a program, which is, you know, it's it's online, it's free, it, it, it just kind of allows us to have a calling card. People can make a judgment based on that rather than just maybe some spin in a marketing document or, you know, a, a very brief conversation. You know, I think it's just easier and more transparent. Uh, it takes a little bit of pressure away, I think, Andrea, to, to just put it out there. Mm. Yeah, I think it does because, you know, everyone has a commercial reality, right? Whether you are a client of an LSP, whether you're the LSP or whether you're a freelancer, everybody has, you know, 
to deal with their own commercials and and you know their own sort of you know their their own demands there so so you know what what we've been trying with the course as Rodrigo said you know we've made it free so so it's really easy to access as well it's just an e-learning but what we've tried to put in there is you know really sort of thorough information you know that has been researched that we you know information that we have been working with in our sort of, you know, in our working, in our daily working lives. So, so these are, you know, we're explaining processes and concepts really that we've been working with, with for years. So we haven't put anything in there that is unproven or that we think people don't need, but we've really tried to make it relevant to, mm -hmm. to you know, to the people who want to learn more about machine translation, about post editing, and now about, you know, AI and linguistic AI, which is, which is, you know, the next, I think, big wave of changes that is coming our way. So don't you think that it was a bit uh, strange because speaking from the other side, from the community of, you know, from the supply yeah. chain point of view, which which <laughs> means freelancers really <laughs> and smaller LSP, LSPs and everybody else, or you can call them vendors or whatever you want. I mean, yeah. also the companies will give you different terminology for, for the group of freelancers or smaller LSPs that work with them. And I, I was at a point, of course, when, when the companies merged that we had on the one side, we called it vendor management. On the other side, we called it supply chain and all of that. So it's like the words collided and then emerged. And that's what happened. But isn't it interesting that we were still, I mean, the community, I guess, in general, of on the on this side, on the commercial side, but it's just that we talk about the commercial side talking about companies when we forget that the, on uh, on the side of everybody else is also a commercial <laughs> situation, right? It's always yeah. a commercial situation, but I guess we keep forgetting that. So how was it from your perspective for the community to outside of the big LSB um, area to receive this new not so new because for you nothing is new at this point you've been there <laughs> and you know exactly what happened and how it happened but how was it to still be dealing with people who are not comfortable with machine translation this terminology i mean right the terminology machine translation they saw it as the big bug and now they see this other one thing ai as the ripper himself right so what <laughs> how is it has it been from from your perspective that the rest of the world like the people who work for you have been receiving this change of concept and what does it really entail in their workflow really to go from machine translation to AI because there's a moment here where yeah. they kind of intertwine or merge and then one thing becomes the other but there was a point and I'm sure you were there to to watch what happened I you know I think I think that moment where we go from machine translation and only machine translation to AI is actually still happening right Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, Rodrigo, I don't know if you disagree, but I think this is, I think we are actually in it. In the area, the in the era of that. Yes, in, in that, yes. Because obviously, you know, with the arrival of ChatGPT, that was a real sort of, you know, inflection point, right? And and you, you suddenly could see, you know, what AI can do. I think, you know, what we sometimes forget is that machine translation, you know, is really it's really one of the earliest applications of AI. You know, it's been around yes. since the, <laughs> you know, 1940s, 1950s in, in like more commercial settings, but I know there were first experiments in the 1800s, right? On, on doing that. So, so really, yeah, I've been reading up on that. That's how <laughs> I should do that. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's been, been nerdy like that, but <laughs> anyway. So, you should send me so, the references because so, I need to read about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so essentially, you know, essentially now we've we've come we've come a really long way with machine translation, as you know. We went through statistical and then neural was the next big thing. And neural is really, you know, it, it provides really good output, you know, for a lot of languages. And I know there'll be people who disagree with that, and, and I think that's fair. Um, but but you know, from our perspective, it it really does, you know, it, it really does help because in the end. All it does is it gives you, you know, in, instead of translating a sentence or a segment in a cattle from scratch, you have a pre-translation there. And you obviously try to work with that pre-translation to, to, you know, and sometimes that pre-translation, I think, can be pretty inspiring too, right? But, but yeah, but now, now what we are talking about is, is things that aren't actually necessarily the machine translation itself, but things that bookend the machine translation on either side. So, so we are we are talking about things like quality estimation. You know, where before you actually come to post editing, you get a label 
that says, you know, this segment is good, this segment is adequate, this segment is, you know, poor, for example, you know, these are the labels we are, for example, using, um, but, but, you know, there might be others. And, and then that, that again, has an, an impact on your working process, because that changes your working process. Because, for example, you know, you may then want to say, okay, so if we have good segments, do they actually need to be post edited? Or do we maybe just lock them for the post editor and just let them look at the adequate and poor segments, so that they actually spend their effort on where it you know, on on where they need to spend it. So, and, and that comes, you know, I know that comes with a, a tale of questions afterwards yes. as well, you know. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, these these are the considerations kind of thing. Or on, on the client side, and I think Rodrigo might want to speak more to that, is, is you know, if I have a document which comes up with 80% of my segments are good, right? do I actually need that document post-edited or will I run that with OMT? Or if I have 50-50, then I'll send my project to post-editing. Hmm. So it, it, what, it, what it gives you in the end is different pathways to go down. And that, that will have an effect. And I think, you know, we don't quite know yet what that effect will do. I mean, you know, us internally, we are running tests on that. But, but that is, you know, that is one of the things I think that will come. And then again, on, on the, the other side, you may want to, you know, say, okay, so yes, my project has been post edited, and my client is happy and all of that. But you might want to monitor much further, you know, the health of your project, the health of post editing for different languages, and you might go and say, okay, so let's do some comparisons here, let's see, you know, there's, there were little changes for a certain language on a certain document type. So does that mean that the MT is really that good? Or mm -hmm. does that mean maybe the post editor has has not edited enough so so these are the things you're trying to figure out on the other side because it's entirely possible that dmt is really that good but it would be good to know that so so you know to keep to keep track of the effort as well that you're doing i don't already go these are just a couple of examples so so that that you know that that we are working with i think and another one now for our machine translation because as you know, we work with our own proprietary machine translation, you know, is, is you know, adaptability. So, so you have, you know, adaptive MT, right? There you can train on your own content, for example, and then get obviously better matching for terminology and style, all of that. So, or, you know, provide automatic feedback, you know, all these, all these processes around it. I think they'll be much more influenced by, by AI, actually, mm -hmm. you know, so, so, you know, there, there's there's really different yeah there's there's it's it's quite a wide field in in terms of you know where we can apply ai and as i said i think i think we're currently in the middle of it in the middle of figuring out what it all means and where we are going to go and and also when it comes to you know the gpt models i think you know for some languages they provide great translations for others which are maybe a bit lower resource they don't um but but i mean the thing is you know they're they're not obviously um created for translation, they're created as conversational AI for other, you know, use cases, really. Mm. But, you know, in the end, you know, you can you can use sort of generative AI for different things, large language models like terminology extraction, for example, you know, which sits on one end of the process, or, you know, you use it maybe to check the text afterwards for a certain style or tone. Mm. So, so, you know, the, these are things, you know, which, which are just some of the things that might come our way to be honest and that will then also change of course the work that that people do you know there might be a lot more fact checking when you work with an llm you know neural machine translation hallucinates as well but not to the extent that you know um generative ai does for example that large language models do so so yeah it's 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 all these things you know and some of them i think are still unknown hmm. Then that's the thing, right? <laughs> you have an overview that it's a bit uh, privileged because <laughs> you kind of are already working on what's happening and, you know, trying to come up with better solutions for whatever is not working so well from your point of view, right? How's the, how, what's the story with having uh, AI in your title, <laughs> Rodrigo? <laughs> uh, how is it affecting I, your, your popularity? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we... 
we kind of realized a few years ago as we started to evolve and this was before kind of the, the latest kind of uh, uh, i guess uh, interest in ai that we were talking more about more than just texting text out which is neural machine translation to some extent and that there needed to be other things or other products um that would help us i think the if we go back a little bit i guess the the idea of being uh, uh, led by ideas. One of the key ideas that was at the beginning is there's too much content. We have to find a way in which we can process content, you know, and I think what happened was that we looked at content insight tools or quality estimation uh, tools, which just allow us to kind of triage to, you know, I think the worst thing that can happen is that somebody sends out a job to a freelancer, to a linguist, and the job isn't what they're expecting. And suddenly you've got a deadline. And so being able to kind of see take a, a peek into, let's say, content at the beginning. What type of content? What kind of domain is it? What kind of complexity is there? How will machine translation work You know, with this particular content, if at all? Those decisions uh, or those insights will then lead us to decisions by upstream, which don't then force a huge amount of disruption, stress into, I guess, you know, the actual production, because by that time, it's too late. There's a deadline. Uh, people have committed to that deadline, you know, from the freelancer or the linguist. Uh, to the customer as well. So I think in our, I guess we want a smoother transition through the workflow so that we, those tools have to emerge. Um, human effort is at a premium uh, mm -hmm. and so that we have to recognize that. Um, there's a huge amount of experimentation going on at the moment, I think we, with AI. Um, and so I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we already have an idea that as many decisions that can be taken at the beginning of the process will probably lead to Think safer outcomes for all involved later on. Mm. I think that's pretty much where where we're at at the moment. Um, I don't know. I think at the moment, in terms of AI, yes, I think if you if you have anything to do with AI, um, I, I can I put it. I think my my parents have kind of known that I've been working steadily for a long period. I don't know if they necessarily appreciate exactly what I'm I, I've done. I've gone from one term to another. So oh, I work in localization. Okay, you know. Um, or now I'm in linguistic AI consultancy. Um, I'm not going to one of my you know, daughter's school kind of, you know, sort of tell, you know, dad tell us what he does for a job anytime soon because it'd be really complex to explain. <laughs> yes. And um, by the time I've explained, I think I would have lost interest of, of the audience. But it's it's certainly exciting. And I think it's a privilege to, to work in this area. I think we've gone full circle, you know, um, language, natural language processing. Um, was an AI problem that was right there at the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. And now, it, you know, we've gone through so many different forms of AI that people have in their houses, you know, in the domestic life, you know, electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of forms of AI that have evolved that may have sounded really quite exciting. And it's kind of strange and ironic now that we've kind of gone back to language. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I mean, if we go back, I think both myself and Andrea obviously have taken deliberate choices to work with language one way or another commercializing it or the process of it um and we are committed to that and i think like we work in an industry where we work with lots of really heartfelt commitment people really you know appreciate language and they identify with it and it's part of their lives they make decisions to go and live in other countries they yes. meet their partners because of language it, yes. it kind of binds us together <laughs> it's such a, a plethora of things that, that happen that once you're in it you don't leave it um, i know <laughs> you can't of, i've got lots of uh probably wondering a little bit more what i'm saying but i think that there is something here at the heart of it which is it is pretty important to you know to the world which is is language you know we talk about breaking the language barrier um and now language is at the heart of, of all these ai kind of like uh I guess, you know, uh, discussions and their discussions have gone much further. So a few years ago, if I said machine, machine translation, people might not have even really recognized what I was saying, you know, if I meet other parents or, you know, <laughs> friends or stuff. But if I talk about AI, everybody now has a view on it. You know, mm -hmm. if, if, I, if I talk to my lawyer or my bank manager, you know, they've heard about it now. Chat yeah. GPT, lots language true. models, children are, are co-piloting already, the schools have to have guidelines on it so it it seems we're always going mainstream so we started at post editing i think you know at some point i think then later myself and andrea started to, to kind of weave a different message which is really around content it was like you know the 
the content chooses the process. So, you know, we, we, we kind of were, were very, um, I guess, clear on the, that, you know, customers had a particular audience. And so we'd usually seen translation and they would have a content strategy and they may decide to fully post edit some content, fully post edit with, you know, with a review, without review or light post editing. So the audience of the content, I guess, was at the heart of, you know, what human effort we, we put in, in place. And I think so we've gone from post editing to content strategy. And now we're in an AI paradigm where we're co-piloting where we're able to perhaps use you know ai in the process to research better make faster business decisions mm-hmm. um, and that's all got to be worked out i think that we're now another inflection point where myself and andrea are i think we're sitting down right and andrea we're planning the next version of certification it will yeah. quite clearly have new modules in there around large language models it will also have modules about a number of other topics uh, as i was watching your podcast i, I must say there are lots of <laughs> topics that i might have heard about but i started to kind of really understand how important they are i mean one of the things that i was very impressed with um there's a sense of agency that a lot of the um the, the people that you, you're inter- interviewing the, the the translators had i mean if i go back to when i was at you know younger i don't think i had that sense of of context around me global context and the sense mm. of agency in terms of okay i'm going to go out and do a podcast or i'm going to do a post or i'm going to advertise myself these are micro businesses yep and so in that respect i mean to kind of bring it back round, i mean yes we are going through this transition but i see lots of people making that transition um not with ease but they're, they're taking it on board quite easily you know in some some respects that they are they are kind of just incorporating it and it's a, a natural progression for them. What seemed very difficult for us at the beginning, maybe 15 years ago in trying to convince people, and there's lots of freelancers out there that have already taken this on board and you can see you see them weaving it into all the kind of things that they publicize on LinkedIn. Mm. So the AI is exciting. I'm glad to be in this space um, and maybe I've got some experience in it, but I don't, <laughs> I expect that, that we're gonna be overtaken quite rapidly. You know, yeah. I think people will take to it much faster in the end. Humans are very adaptable. Um, mm. I don't know. And, and uh, I mean, maybe, you know, the next version of certification, by the time we try to write it, you know, yes. more events will have overtaken. It's already obsolete. Let's hope not. But I mean, I'm sure, you know, I should I should probably run it past my children, to be honest, <laughs> to make sure that it um, that it hits the right kind of that it hits the right note. But but I, I, I know this this is a bit of a tangent. Right. But I think I think, you know, I mean, my my sons who are 17 and 19 yeah they always they always think i grew up in the dark ages you know without computers without smartphones and and they they generally ask me all the time oh my god what did you do with your time you know how did you spend your time i was like well you know we did this and that and then they go oh yeah well whatever we are not interested we don't want to hear that but um but but you know they're already as a generation right they they've grown up with so much technology right which which um you know, none of us, at least Rodrigo and I, you know, haven't kind of thing, you know, we, we've come to technology as it developed, but, you know, we were already mm. adults. But I think they're, 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 you know, so immersed in that already. I mean, you know, none of them would ever read a manual of something, you know, they go and watch a YouTube video, obviously, yep. you know, so, so it's, it's, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, with technology changing, you know, people change as well. So, so, you know, and, and I think, I think in the end, you know, I think technology is neutral. It's what we do with it, you know, that can go in either direction, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. So, so, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I do agree with Rodrigo. It's a really exciting space to be in, you know, of course it doesn't feel like it did sort of, you know, 15 years ago when, when, when all this was beginning and so on. But, but, you know, I think one of the things we also need to remember is that, you know, language has always been a difficult problem to solve with technology and AI. And I think it remains a difficult problem. Look at the Babel Tower. (laughs) (laughs) It was a huge problem. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting better at it, right? But but that's that's why that's why I think you know that's why we that's why we do this training. That's why we still do certification because you know I I don't think we'll we'll lose people anytime soon. Right. I, I think, you know, people and language, it's, it's just connected. You know, it's, it's how we engage, it's how we communicate. You know, it's how we, 
how we manage and maintain our lives really, you know, it's through communication. And then whether that communication is more technology driven or not, you know, I still think, you know, that that there is a role, you know, for translators and for people in all of this. I think um, we're gonna lose tasks, but we're not gonna lose people. Mm, and I think yeah. that, that's the, the normal thing. I mean, you know, that, that's happened. Probably the, the, the terminology will also change because translator means something that it will probably not be around as, as an activity for for the, the coming years. Yeah, yeah I know I what you mean. I think it's going to change. We, we often refer to linguists. I don't know what, if sometimes that's, you know, a, a term which, you know, depends, you can ask different people, but for some people it's more comfortable because it can encompass more things. It can encompass more roles or activities. And, you know, I think we published quite recently, or you published, Andrea, you know, a, a number of roles that will emerge with linguistic AI you know, whether it's labeling data or if it's quality checking. So in, in the end, language skills are, are really key to, to making sure that the, I guess, the, you know, the technology evolves. We, we, we've always, always had a lot of feedback, right? And I think we've had to kind of, Andre, always say, you know, we're glad to get feedback. You know, we, we, we need something a bit more than just says, you know, oh, it's, it was terrible, right? Or, mm. We need to know why, <laughs> you know, we need, we need kind of structured feedback. But it, it's certainly something which, you know, the language skills are, are going to be at the heart of things. So we see that, that there's lots of workflows, technology workflows that, for instance, you know, they're, they're bringing people and technology together. But below that, you've got a level of those people have expertise and that technology is based on data. And mm -hmm. it's, the, it's, it's the linguists, it's the translators are curating quality data for the, the machine learning to, to kind of benefit from. And then, you know, in the workflows, you're again, you know, you're going through this uh, workflow of I guess, translating content, but at the same time, each time you're creating more and more data. So it's a kind of virtuous kind of cycle where we're creating content and data at the same time. Mm. Uh, uh, and so we are in some ways kind of writing our own future as you get translators creating that data and that content. That yeah, was beautiful, so, yes. <laughs> so you have to kind of, I don't know, it, it, for me, it, it's, I guess, in a part of my experience, I, I think I've never been that attached to anything. I've lived in several countries and so I'm not in any way particularly attached to one particular thing. I, I kind of realized, you know, that change is inevitable. My parents went to, to, to the UK. They never expected to go to the UK. It mm -hmm. wasn't part of their plans that, you know, they, that the upheaval happened for political reasons. And then they just had to adapt. And then, you know, bit by bit, you know, my parents, you know, as, as kind of um, political exiles, migrants, that they, they needed to move around for jobs. You know, that was just the reality. They had to learn a language. It was just kind of like, you know, change and adapt or not survive. And so I think in that, I think I came to this particular industry where there's constant change, constant technology, which translators always, I think, you know, they're, um, you know, they're always expected to do. It's not a difficult thing for me, but it goes back to the idea of empathy. What's not difficult for me may be difficult for others. And that's mm -hmm. where I think um, Probably myself and Andrea have had a very useful relationship in, in one person sometimes having an idea and the other person saying, yeah, you might need to calibrate the message there. You know, there's nothing which I publish when I write that is not checked by Andrea ever. Oh. Yeah, never. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a sense of reality. That's a beautiful you know. thing. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because I, I understand, obviously, you have totally different backgrounds in terms of your, your original cultures and all of that. And the fact that you can, you know, sustain this relationship, it's a bit like, no matter what happens, we know how valuable we are, we are to each other, right, I guess. Yeah, that is that is true. And, you know, the funny thing is that our, um, our children are fast friends as well. Oh. So there you go. <laughs> they got it. They get on really well together. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I, I, this is what I like is what <laughs> I told you before, like, this is the idea of, of the podcast being the way it is, as in not really prepared. Uh, there's a few exceptions over there if I need to ask something very specific to someone or whatever. But usually I don't have any anything prepared exactly because it, this is what's interesting to me, because I always say I get I even say it in the introduction. It's how you actually merge your personal lives with your work in language, because as Rodrigo said, and I could not agree more. It's like something that we choose to do. I mean, why else would we do it, right? It's not like any other job. It's a lot more personal and it comes a lot from our own bodies and guts, the way we feel about all this, because language mm -hmm. is just, you know, part of you in such a way. It's such a, a human thing that uh, that's why, you know, we cannot forget ever 
the perspective of everybody else involved and not just look at it from that one you know place where it will make you money blah blah blah. it makes everybody money it's true or else people wouldn't be in the industry because i mean you can do it for pleasure obviously i do a lot of things related to language for pleasure but in the end i also need to live to have my livelihood from all of those things too right so it has to play a really important part at some point right so this is sometimes yeah of course definitely meaningful and i think strangely enough the two people myself and andrea that work in ai Mm-hmm. we've worked with many people and I think that you know it's the human relationships that are very important to sustain a project especially over 15 years or 20 years it, it, you know it's, it's the give and take sometimes you you know I think it's, it's no surprise but sometimes we fall out you know and then we have to have some elasticity in our relationship to come back together in the end we both care about uh, the work that we do so it, it's the very I think Sometimes with me, I, I need to kind of sit down and think, you know, what if I have to put this down in two or three words, you know, what is it, you know, and then I can kind of regain kind of the enthusiasm or what I need, but I have to write it down first, you know. Um, and I think we talk about, I think, was it authentic AI powered by humans? Yeah. It has to be authentic AI. And that's what we're yeah. talking about. The authenticity uh, is very key, uh, yeah. I think, to us, you know. Because, because you know, you know, AI is in the end powered by you by humans, right? And I think that's what makes it authentic. And you know, and and yeah, this is. I mean, you know, we really enjoy being in this space, but you know, the the enjoyment also comes, you know, from bringing it to people. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I hear you. Well, on this note. <laughs> We're going to stop this hour because, of course, we could just go on for a long time because, of course, I mean, I, I can only imagine all the things that you could get into as a conversation <laughs> if we went to do details and things like that. So maybe one of these days we could have like a, a topic discussion uh, because now you have that certification and everything planned. So you never know if we're going to talk about that because that's a really important thing because a lot of people don't have enough information on the subject. Maybe that's why they don't make informed decisions. We all know that that's the way it goes. Other people have a lot of knowledge about it. Other people feel comfortable with it. And so I guess it's very valuable that they know where to look for the information. So, you know, but for today, I guess <laughs> I thank you very much for being here. It, I love having a perspective from someone who is such, you know, who has such a such an overview because you're in a very particular position where like the majority of people cannot be because it's where everything is happening. And so your your opinion is absolutely uh, essential to the rest of us to have, you know, to also make up our minds about a lot of things. So thank you so much for being here and I hope we can talk soon. That would be amazing. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure to have a chat. A chat. It was really nice. So um, yeah, we look forward to further conversations. Okie dokie. So I'll see you guys soon and I'll be following your posts and everything else. Now that I know that they are a joint venture between <laughs> both of you. <laughs> Thank you so much and we'll talk soon. Bye guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.